basically is today is is some of the pray. O God, who in creating human nature has wonderfully dignified it and still more wonderfully reformed it, grant that we may become partakers of his divine nature who deigned to partake of our human nature, thy Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, throughout all ages of ages. Amen. Okay, remember we're talking about, we're talking about temptations of the enemy and how the enemy tempts us, Satan tempts us keep, to keep us from being faithful Christians. And I'm, I'm using quotes from Peter Crape's book, The Snakebite Letters. Crape is Roman Catholic, but most of what he says, and, and his book is addressed to Roman Catholics, so, but there are some things, most of the things he says apply to us and a couple of things that are specifically Roman Catholic issues. Like when he talks about the infallibility of the Pope, of course, he's dealing with something we don't tend to. So uh, obviously that doesn't fit for us, but everything else really does. Uh, and it's, a, it's an upgrading or an updating of, of C.S. Lewis' work, The Screw Tape Letters, which is more of a generalized thing that all Christians deal with. And Crave deals with issues that are peculiar to, not just to Catholics, but to American Christians. So what I want to talk about today is the, the temptations or the things that, that in discipleship we as American Christians give to the enemy to manipulate us, to the devil, to Satan, to, tempt, to demon, demonic powers. The, this, the book is called The Snakebite Letters, and the, the subtitle I've told you before, I, I love it, how the devil uses, or, or the subtitle is Devilishly Devious Secrets, uh, oh, I've got it in here somewhere now. I've misplaced it, wouldn't you know? Uh, this is when old guys teach things, they get all messed up. Never mind. Devilishly devious, devious secrets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so this is about how the devil uses our culture against us. Uh, and, and just as an aside here, uh, without going into the story, I got this idea, the overall picture of this idea, not from Kraft, but from the priest who founded this par parish, Father Patrick McCauley, when we were both in the Episcopal Church. So if you don't like what you hear, blame him. <laughs> so, uh, anyway. So orthodoxy, orthodoxy is for all. We are not a denomination. We didn't denominate from anybody. We are the church. I remember when I was, before I became orthodox, I used to think, well, there's something in America for everybody. Yeah, there is. It's called orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is for everyone in the world. Don't ever mistake that. So it is for all. One faith for all people. Now, having said that, each culture and country will have its own expressions of it. There are the peculiar characteristics, peculiar struggles. Uh, I was reading a book by the, the Greek Orthodox Metropolitan Herotheus Vlakos recently, and he, and he complained 
about the English language. And he said, the language does not allow for certain ideas that are easily transmitted in Greek. Uh, and, and he said it with a certain disdain, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's a cultural thing. And, and, and he went on to add that in Greece, it's not just the language, but the whole culture is saturated by principles of orthodoxy. So you can say things with implications that you can't say elsewhere. Uh, and so each culture will have its own version. I, I was at a conference or heard of a conference on, 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 the, rate, on the AFR recently. Uh, and someone asked, well, what, do we, what does orthodoxy have to offer African Americans? Well, and the answer was that orthodoxy is for all people. So that's not even a valid question. What does orthodoxy have to offer us, all of us? And it's the same thing everywhere. And that's why we can go to the Orthodox Church in Russia or in somewhere in Africa, and even though there may be slight nuances that are different, we get the same thing. This is why you can go to a church, an Orthodox church, that does the whole service in another language, and it's okay. Because we worship, we're taught to worship as much with our eyes as with our ears and with our voices. So when we first started going to St. Constantine and Helen, uh, you know, half the service was in, parts of the service at least were in Arabic. It didn't matter. I mean, we weren't even familiar with the Eastern Rite. It didn't matter. We knew from the Western Rite the basic structure of the liturgy so we could tell what was going on and we had a feel for it and we just let it go. Uh, took some time to get used to the different rhythm, but, but still, it's, it's there and it's for all of us. So what is to be said in this applies particularly to our culture and setting. Uh, and that culture then I would call, I call, American Christianity. So as I lay this out, remember that we're going to use quotes from the book. So it's basically a demon instructing lesser demons on how to make us fall into sin uh, and separate us from Christ. Uh, and so keep that in mind. And as we do this, we're going to come to understand something about our own scenario, and not only our own scenarios, but ourselves because we are American Christians. We are Orthodox Christians in an American setting. Uh, and we're gonna be doing battle with some of that American setting in our own journeys. Anyway, this, I'm gonna start with this one quote. Remember, this is a senior demon talking to another demon. This may shock you since the church is only remaining earthly enemy of any substance. Since the church is our only remaining en earthly enemy of any substance and our victim's conversion to that church is sincere for the moment but you forget that your patient is American, delightfully, typically American. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the things I get out of this book is I hear this, this, I hear this, this character sneering at human, at Americans, and it makes me mad. You know, and, and don't get Irish dander up, it doesn't work very well. Uh, so anyway, it makes me mad, and it should. And remember it from, from another class, the story of the, uh, in, handed down in the church and in Judaism and Christianity about the devil. Mo the devil did not want humanity to be what God wanted it to be. So he had a disdain for this creature, us. And he has a disdain for us. And so all of this is very disdainful as he says these things. So I call this American Christianity, as I've mentioned. And it carries with it certain characteristics, which we need to recognize which characteristics which are easily exploited by the enemy. So remember when we did the four stages of sin, the first motion, you know, the devil throws things out there. Did God say? 
Uh, or if you are the son of God. So those are first motions. They're not sins. They're just, they're just thoughts. But he knows where to pick on us. So the first one is, is that Christians tend to view ourselves as Americans first and then Christians or Orthodox Christians. The demon says they thought of themselves as Americans who happened to be Catholic rather than Catholics who happened to be Americans. This confusion about their true fatherland can be our wedge. So, you know, our brethren around the world are the Orthodox. That's where we're going to be within eternity. Maybe a lot of Americans are going to be in hell at the end of time, whatever that entails, however much that entails. Our kingdom is not of this world. Now, we are to be good stewards and good citizens in any kingdom in which we find ourselves. So there's no excuse for, for bad citizenship. But our first loyalty is to Christ and to heaven and eternity and paradise. And the first wedge is to get us to see otherwise. So, you know, only real Christianity is in America and only Americans can be real Christians. No, no wrong. When I was in seminary, some of the best seminary people in the seminary, this was Episcopal Church Seminary, were from Africa. <laughs> you know, so they weren't Americans. Hardly spoke English, but they were God-fearing people. And they were a real witness to the rest of us. Anyway, Americans live to CERN and are directed by their feelings. Remember in the 60s, if it feels good, do it. For those of you who are old enough, you remember that motto. It's now become sort of the mantra of society, or it's not even a mantra, it's just an ethos of society. And so he says, like most Americans, your patient is a sentimentalist. He lives by emotion more than by thought. Wow, emotion more by that. And that, that's very American. How do you feel about this? I didn't go to that, back to that church because I didn't feel the spirit. Which, Good luck. You're never going to feel the spirit. Let me read you something from C.S. Lewis. <laughs> or only temporarily. C.S. Lewis said this about this kind of thing in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Our cause, remember this also is a demon talking. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's what God wants from us. That's not to say we don't feel things. We do. Some of the, the Christian life, sometimes an encounter with God could be the most emotional experience. We sang that hymn today, and I always get choked up at those last the third and fourth verses of that hymn. Heart of my heart. That's an Irish term of endearment for one deeply in love. Boy, that just gets me every time I see those words. So it's emotional, but that has nothing to do with anything. You know, when I, when I get out of here, I got to live the Christian faith. It isn't easy because you people don't make it easy. <laughs> I joke, you know I'm joking, of course. Don't anybody take this personally. It just, you know, this is the way we view things. If everybody else were, get, were to get their acts together, we'd be fine. Well, that's wrong. That's American Christianity, too. We take care of us. That's the job. We've got to take care of us. And that doesn't mean don't worry about those things out there, but we start with correcting us. Americans believe that the goal of life is pleasure. The demon says, since he's a typical American, he believes implicitly that the aim of life is maximum enjoyment. So we want spirituality to be quick, and we want it to be pleasurable. 
uh, and we want it to, to, to make sense. You want, give me five easy steps for being a Christian and having an encounter with God. Well, pray, confess, be here on Sunday. Uh, I'll have to study, think about two more, but those two are really, those three are really important. So that, that doesn't go well with someone who's in for maximum enjoyment. Give me something else. So let's go somewhere else where we can find something we hear that does make us feel good. Well, what my observation is if, of churches that do that and people that go to those uh, is that sooner or later they get accustomed to what's going on and it's no longer titillating. So they go looking for the next one, the next church, the next place to do that. Uh, in, in one city where I was, since we're online, I best leave it nameless. There was always what I used to call the church of what's happening now. That was the one that had the newest ideas that, t that turned people on, got them excited. And so you could always tell which that one was because for two years, the parish parking lot would be packed. And then somebody, they, people would get bored and someone else would come up with a new idea. So another church in town would become the church of what's happening now. And then the church that was that what's happening now has uh, got a half empty parking lot. I think I told you when Father Kaiser was, uh, blessed memory, was visiting us once in Wichita Falls, we drove by one of those churches as I was taken from the hotel to the parish for Sunday mass. Uh, and it said, now in this 36th week of revival, and his, and his comment was, how many weeks does it take? <laughs> so in any case, the aim for this, for a typical American is maximum enjoyment. <coughs> Americans equate democracy with freedom or unrestricted behavior and thought. The demon says their real religion is democracy, which in their minds means freedom, which in turn usually means simply doing whatever they like. So I remember... And, God bless him, an Episcopalian bishop told me one time, the church is not a democracy. So we need to all understand that. It's a hierarchy with authority. And this is the way to God. The church is not a democracy. We don't vote on things. We don't vote on the doctrines. We don't vote on who the priest is. In fact, in Orthodoxy, we don't even get to call the priest. At least in the Episcopal church, we used to have a say in the parish. Uh, we don't have much of a say in orthodoxy. The bishop makes that decision, or the metropolitan. So if you think you're going to get rid of him, uh, you've you got a whole new system to deal with. So anyway, it's not a democracy, and I'm, I'm just saying that. Because don't plant that in there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just come talk to me. I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> Americans are prone to reject the gospel simply because it demands of us that we curb our self-indulgence, the demon says. Those who are obsessed with their unrepentant misbehavior certainly don't want a literally divine, literally resurrected Christ around or an authoritative church or even objective truth and certainly not a real hell. But the enemy's son clearly believed and taught all these things. Read about it. Jesus said this. So his authority has to be undermined by undermining the historical accuracy of the Gospels or to just call it into question. So we have something out there called source criticism that's real popular in American Christian <laughs> circles. And basically that is, is that you analyze the books that, of the Bible 
and analyze the language and try to determine all one can about who really wrote it. So once one does that, one makes it purely literary and historical, and therefore there's plenty of reason to question whether Jesus really said it. For example, this is one form of that, and that is nowhere do we have any writings that Jesus actually wrote. The four Gospels were written by his disciples, some of his disciples, maybe even later. So we don't know that he actually said anything that's in there, that, he, that they said he said this. So how do we know that? Well, there's the first question mark. If that's the case, then we don't really need to take any of it seriously, do we? And there are some sources which are actually doing that. One of the ones I, I shouldn't even tell this story, but it's one of my favorites because it's so ludicrous, is that scholars of source criticism have found that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, have some things in common that suggest that there was a pre-gospel source or a pre-gospel gospel. This is a hypothesis. I hope you understand what that means. Someone came up with an idea that's totally unprovable and yet he's throwing it out there. And so the hypothesis is that there was originally another gospel available and Matthew, Mark, and Luke took parts from it to create their gospel accounts. Okay, well that's, and if you look at this, if you, they, scholars can give you a whole list of Bible verses from each of those gospels which are part of the Q source. So if you take those verses, and it's called Q by the way, if you take those verses and put them together, you get a gospel account. And it's funny what's missing. Things like the divinity, reference to the divinity of Christ and certain of those references, things that were, are, are relevant to that and are necessary to, uh, to under, for that to be understood for the rest of the story to make any sense. So in essence, if the, if the hypothesis about Q is correct, then the story about the divinity of Christ is omitted. Who wants us to have that story omitted? See? See, why is that? Now, here's just an aside. I, lo I love it. Do we? That's a hypothesis. There is now, there has been, I don't, I've read it, I only read about it, but it just struck me as humorous, that there is a so-called scholar in this line of thinking who's now come up with a hypothesis about the source criticism of Q. So, so a hypothesis about a hypothesis. That's where it goes. And it takes us further and further away from Christ. We understand, and we have to accept that, that he says this, and it's not going to be undermined. This is the essence of everything we say and do, that Christ is God incarnate. If we don't believe that, we don't believe in Christianity, period. And if we do believe in Christianity, we believe that. That's the starting point. God became man that man might become God. Big order for us, too, isn't it? Tied into it. Americans are superficial. They claim to have morals, but these morals are without substance, the demon says. Most of them don't yet believe in infidelity, but they do believe in fornication. The only strictures they put on copulating are, quote, emotional maturity, unquote, and, quote, commitment, unquote, which are vague enough for anyone but an infant to claim. So we don't mind hearing about morals such as love and be nice to people and don't judge anybody, and those are real things but keep them vague and indifferent and don't say anything about the rules of morals. 
Don't say anything about that. Sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. Don't say that in the church. And by God, don't say it in, in public. Where's that coming from? And we're vulnerable to it. The more we hear it, Hollywood is pounding away at us. The media are pounding away at us with these things. And I'm finding that more and more Christians are being sucked into this thinking. And we have to ask, where is this coming from? Americans are theologically inconsistent. We say something, and yet we mean something else. Back in the 90s, there was, there was in the news something about the need for American schools to have what's called values-free curricula. Some of you are moaning, so you remember that. Well, think about the terminology. The idea behind it is, is that too many of the curricula are value-biased. That is, that, that certain cultural activities or understandings, even moral understandings, are presented uh, or the basis of those curricula. But a values-free curricula says there's no basic particular biased value which is influencing that value. So it says values-free, but it is a value. That is, that values-free is better than values-biased. So it's a contradiction in terms. So, but we don't want to think about these things. So we don't think about that. You know, I, I, we like to watch Channel 11 news, and, and I don't even watch the national news anymore because the media is so biased and it just makes me irritated and I lose my peace. So, but we always turn on Channel 11 just before Nora O'Donnell gets done. And she typically ends with some moral thing appealing to emotions. And my thought is, what are your absolute values, which lie, or supposedly lie behind what you're saying? And I don't know as a media whether she has any. I don't know. But who says we should be nice? Who says we should be moral? Who says we should not judge others? Who says? When it comes out of someone in Hollywood or society, who says? Being a media person does not give that person authority. You know, even a Muslim, we know why he says what he says or believes. It's in the Quran or in Sharia law. That's an absolute value for him, not for us. But for him, I mean, it's, that's what motivates him. A Hindu would be the same. There'd be some sense of that absolute nature. So some system of absolutes. And of course, they always say if, you say, if you say anything bad about it, it's judging. And we don't want to be judged because that would make us feel bad. And we'd get emotional and, and feel condemned. What does that mean when people say, don't judge? It means don't say no. Don't ever say no. Don't ever say something is wrong. Well, guess what? They're telling us that saying no, not say, or that saying no is wrong. So it's a contradiction in terms. So I would say we don't have to listen to it. Nonsense. Jesus did say don't judge. And he was telling us no when he said it. So there's a difference between judging as condemning and judging as saying no. And Christ tells us no, but the demon doesn't want us to think that way. Anything goes. 
Americans view truth as being something which is relevant to current circumstances or events. He goes on to say, as preteens, Americans learn the fun of shocking the old folks. Later, it becomes the serious create your own value stage, as if values belong to individuals like material possessions. Next, they can be made to hate or fear standards themselves as oppressive and to want to lower all standards to a common level. The easiest ways to do this are relativism and subjectivism. If anything goes, anyone can qualify. Well, anyone can qualify as long as we're repentant sinners that we come like the prodigal son and run back to our father. I've sinned against you and against heaven. <laughs> That's the way, and it's for all of us. But that we have to honor the, what Christ said about no. Americans fear being labeled. The, angel, the demon says, your patient, like most Americans, is a conformist, though he fancies himself a free thinker. How many of you like to think you're a free thinker? We're conformists. He fears being different, eccentric, much more than he fears being wicked. The society to which he aspires to conform is, in fact, a highly elitist society dominated by a tiny coterie of opinion molders in the media and educational establishments. And I don't want to go into all of that, okay? Uh, that's, that's the media, and that, I'm just saying. Appeal to his desires, especially the desire to be in, to be modern, and to justify instead of repenting of his sins. Repentance is so unprogressive. I remember after I spoke about repentance in my parish, I think I've told you this story, one woman came up to me and said, Father, that's too negative. I want positive strokes. Well, remember what I said last time. Positive, negative sometimes is positive in the Christian life. To tell us we need to repent is positive. The first words out of Jesus' mouth were repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He didn't say feel good about the, <laughs> yourself because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. And we all have plenty of that to do. You've already have one power level in his soul, his fanatical desire to avoid being labeled a fanatic. Those sheepish Ameri those Americans who posture themselves as free thinkers are often the most sheepish conformists. They fear rejection by men more than rejection by God. That's scary. Americans are great at excusing their behavior. <laughs> he uses the word wedge, and for some reason, watching uh, Chicago Fire, you know, they had a situation where somebody, I saw two different shows this week where somebody was weighted down by something collapsed on a person, and so the way they got him out from under it was they used these, these air-filled bags to lift it up and they shoved wedges in underneath it to lift it up and hold it up so they could pull the individual out. So, so anyway, for that first wedge is like the first drink or drug or cigarette or affair. It will not be his last. It's the first exception to the rule that all the enemy's dog, God's dogmas are infallible. And whenever humans make an exception to a rule, they make it a rule to make exceptions. That is a rule. <laughs> and lastly, all of this then means we're passing judgment on God. Thus, the demon says, man is really erecting a standard above God and judging God by that standard. His mind over the enemies. See, we would never think that we are judging God when we say, well, that can't be. But we are. We're saying, I know better. What he naively considers his opinions, 
are usually the fashionable ideas of his age, of which we are the masters. That's scary. This is why the church must form our ideas, because it spans time in the opinions of all the various eras and cultures of history. And there's something to be learned from everybody who's been involved in that. And it all says the same thing, which ought to tell us something. Unlike our society where everybody has a different idea of what reality is, and truth is supposed to be all of that together? No. So summarizing American Christianity then, do you, do you feel like, is there any help, help? Is there any hope, Lord, for me or help? Help. Sir, summary, summarizing American Christianity. Christ, American Christians view themselves as American before being Christian. They're directed by their feelings. And remember, again, that doesn't mean feelings are bad. We just don't let them be determined. We don't let them determine what we do. They live for pleasure. American Christians are independent. They don't like an authority structure. American Christians tend not to believe in objective truth. American Christians tend to be superficial about morality. American Christians tend to be superficial about priorities. They are theologically inconsistent. They're fearful of excess. Somebody might think I'm a fanatic. You know, we, there, there, there's wrong fanaticism, but still. And lastly, they're great at excuse making. I go back to that original quote from the, the demon, having said all those things. This may shock you since the church is our only remaining earthly enemy of any substance and our victim's conversion to that church is sincere for the moment, but you forget that your patient is American, delightfully, typically American. That's scary. <laughs> I mean, if, if we know our sins, that's scary. And I can easily be a victim to all that stuff, as she can attest. <laughs> so, in any case, the next time we will look at ex precise things that are about 20, 18 or 20 different things that, that the demon says that are in the book. This just deals with, today, just dealing with American Christianity. I'm setting you up for the real temptations, things that hit us. So, questions? That's all I can, yes? Uh, go back to how you started, you talked about uh, different like cultural expressions of orthodoxy. Uh, what do you think like an authentic American expression of orthodoxy would like, look like? And uh, do you think like the Western right, uh, how we celebrate here, plays into that at all? No. That is, that and the Eastern Rite are both authentic expressions. Uh, uh, jur not, not, that, not jurisdiction, uh, geographical expressions. Geographical and cultural expressions of the same truth. And that's why I like to say to people, don't think of orthodoxy as, or Eastern Rite and Western Rite as being antithetical to one another. We both do the same things differently and different things the same way. For example, uh, when we do collects, we do 
several collects, and we always end the collects section, and even the mass is done this way in a sense, with some devotion. If you look at our offices, I'm saying this basically our divine offices, the, the, the collects are done, and the last one is a collect to the mother of God. The Eastern Rite tends to bring prayers together and, and culminate them in the mother of God, like the litanies. Uh, where they're done, and the last litany is to the mother of God. All the litanies end with that. It's the same thing. It's a di different way and a different collection of material, but we're doing the same thing. In Holy Week, the Eastern Rite has the 12 Gospels on, Mon on Holy Thursday. We have four Gospels, the same stories told in four Gospels over four days. They have the, the putting out of the candles uh, when they're reading the 12 Gospels. So the extinguishing the candles or, or lighting the candles and in the Western Rite, in Tenebrae, we put them out. <laughs> Four, same number of candles, same idea. The basic structure of some of those services, and parts between the 12 Gospels, is almost the same as to our Tenebrae office. So you can see us doing the same things differently and different things the same way. So it's all that, yes. I think maybe what he's asking, I'm not sure, but the Western, you know, Western mindsets different from Eastern mindsets. It's like our world. <coughs> You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So it seems like, I'm not saying one's better than the other, but doesn't the Western expression kind of overlap our Western way of thinking a little bit more easily, or is that just an opinion? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it matters, because we find a lot of people, people converting to orthodoxy either seem to, there's a, each rite has a different rhythm. I call it a rhythm, it's like music. It's like the beat and the tempo of music. Uh, and the Eastern Rite tempo is entirely different than the Western Rite tempo. And so we're all inclined in toward these tempos, and it's nothing to do with culture, really, uh, or at least not limited to that. In America, we have a whole mix. So we're inclined to this rhythm, and so some of us are gonna come into orthodoxy, uh, and we get the same picture, the same understanding of truth and what is true, but the rhythm is different in the worship. The same things are being done, but the rhythm is different uh, than it is in the Western Rite. And some of us are inclined to the Western Rite rhythm, and some of us are inclined to the Eastern Rite rhythm, but it's still in the same picture of the whole thing. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. So we just have to, it's, I always tell people, go to an Eastern Rite parish, if you've only been to a Western Rite parish, just try it out and see. You know, we're not competing, we're in this together. So, and, 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 it, and it is hard to adjust. We, we were in a Western, Western Rite parish for years in orthodoxy, and then we retired and I was in an Eastern Rite parish, and I had to get used to that rhythm. It took me about five years, just when I got the hang of it, we came over here. So I had to shift gears and learn back. But the faith is the same. The faith you know, I have is the same experience, and I know what you're talking about. And let me let me give you some testimonies from people in both that I've experienced. There are some that find their most natural rhythm because they've come from this culture in the Western Rite, and then I've had some come out of the Western culture needing what they would call the foreign feeling of yeah. the Eastern Rite for the kingdom of God to truly unveil. They needed a break yeah. from all of that rhythm that the church provides, whether Western right, either way, souls are being brought to repentance and souls are being saved. I'll tell you something, speaking of these deceits, and, and Father touched on it a number of times, but one of the things we need to watch out for, speaking of all the different cultures that orthodoxy exists in, he even mentioned the African culture. 
you would have sticker shock if you went to a, in a in a blessed way if you went to africa and went to a liturgy the liturgy is the same but they're dancing all over the place they're rejoicing very physically because that's who they are and that's their culture you see one of the things that satan wants to do, talk about a wedge he's active now looking and saying oh the russian version of orthodoxy is the right way the antiochians do it the right way in this way the greeks do it this way and i could go on and on about the different cultures and our and, and i tell you all i hear is saint paul saying oh my gosh you are saying i follow paul i follow <laughs> apollos i follow peter I, it's all one faith i'm glad i didn't baptize any of you <laughs> faith Every patriarchate is pastoring their people, trying to follow God, but it's one faith. You see? No higher, no lower. Everyone is shepherding souls, and we're in that. We have to be very careful not to be so American and so easily swayed that because they're doing it this way or they're doing it this way, oh, that's the only orthodoxy there is. Hogwash. It's never been that way. It's never been so perfect and clean ever in 2,000 years. Let's not fall to that. I'll tell you where the culture of orthodoxy exists. It has nothing to do with the culture other than the culture of the kingdom of God, where people are in repentance, and they are doing what Christ says, and, they are and their souls are being healed. That's where orthodoxy is, and it's in all of them. And that's the one place the enemy does not want any of us to go. Absolutely. And he'll do anything and, not as above, and is not above anything to ensure that that happens. That is, that we don't, that we don't find that. So, anyway. All right, thank you.